0: you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55, I have to say it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, we're going to take a little look at it this morning. Luke 1, through 55, hear now the word of God. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. as far as the reading of God's word let's pray father in heaven we do pray that we would be able to examine and look at in a very personal way what mary was experiencing when she spoke these words may we learn father may we understand just the depth of this joy and may it be ours as well for the very things father that she sings of, are things that apply to all who fear the living God, all who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm shocked at the things that move me. You know, some, uh, quote, heroic display of athleticism, or maybe uh, in a drama that I'm watching or, or reading, you know, a turn and it takes a turn and I find myself fighting back tears, you know, especially if other people are around. Or maybe I, something happens, I don't know if this ever happens to you, you involuntarily raise your hands. Like something happens and you're like, what, I think what excites us? can be a pretty accurate gauge of self-analysis. It might tell us where we're investing our hearts. What, what kind of news might you hear today that would animate you? Or, on the flip side of that, what news could you hear today that would utterly dismantle you. This morning, we will read of a teenage girl responding to news. And it would appear that her heart was quite ready to engage in an almost unprecedented exaltation. In Mary, I think we, we see an example of of what the psalmist had conveyed a thousand years earlier when he wrote in Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. A lot of us will look at a verse like that and go, I'm not getting the desires of my heart. Maybe it's because we're not delighting in the Lord. There's little doubt that this young woman took delight in the Lord, took delight in the things of God. This was her investment. This is where she had made an investment, an investment of time, of prayer, of study, of conviction. She didn't spend all her day in front of a screen. She didn't spend all her day investing her heart, her mind, her soul in that which was mundane and worthless. She was invested in that which was holy. And now, the event of which she would play a major role generates a response. She has made this investment, and now it comes to her. You're going to play a major role in that which you have studied all your life, and this morning, we're going to observe her observation, and I do pray that it would be a source of edification for us, and at some level, we would seek to follow that example. Now, just so we understand where we're at in Luke, in case you're just kind of tuning in to this series, we're in Luke chapter 1, so it's the very, very very beginning of the New Covenant. I mean, it starts with, John the Baptist. So the angel Gabriel approaches Zechariah, the father, who would become the father of John the Baptist, and says, your wife's going to have, have a son, even though she's barren. She can, there's going to be a miraculous birth here. And their son would become John the Baptist. Gabriel also appears to Mary and informs her that she would give birth to the Savior, even though she had not known a man. And what we're looking at here is what Mary's doing while she and Elizabeth are visiting. Mary would go visit Elizabeth. They were both with child. Elizabeth would confirm what the angel had said in Luke 1.42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And Mary's response here comes in the form of what a lot of people think was a song. Others say just because of the prose of it might have been a poem. Others say it was a canticle. We don't know exactly what it was. It's probably just not a narrative. It probably goes into something beyond that. But that's what we're looking at here. I think it's worth noting that Mary's song, and I'll call it a song just for the sake of this discussion, is far from dispassionate. I mean, it's very passionate. But it's also full of allusions to the Old Testament. The things that she's saying come right out of quotes from Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Things from the Psalms. Things from Isaiah. All of these things are flowing from this young woman's lips. In today's culture, by the way, Mary, who was probably a teenager, would be considered an adolescent Adolescent, by the way, is a term that's a fairly new term. It's like maybe a 100, 150-year-old term. But in the Bible, there are children and there are grown-ups. There are no adolescents. So roughly, when you got to be about 13, you were a grown-up. There wasn't this little area between 13 and 18, whatever they are, we create, you know, we create a name for it, but that that wasn't something that we saw in the scriptures. Not to get everybody all depressed, but what we're going to read this morning is a glorious example of a godly teenager. Now, what we're reading here is often called the Magnificat, just for the sake of information, which is the first word in the hymn in the Latin, Vulgate. Magnificat anima mea dominium would have been the Latin for that, meaning my soul magnifies the Lord. And I think it is a wonderful example of, of, of passion tempered and directed by knowledge and truth. She's not just rambling, right? She's not just going, I'm so excited, I'm going to say anything. The things that she's saying, though very passionate, are, are guided by that which is knowledgeable and true and biblical. It's almost like um, somebody who's got God-given artistic talent, right? But they they don't understand anatomy. So when they're doing their paintings, they're like, well, you don't understand the way the body works. Or they're doing, you know, architecture. They don't understand, like, engineering. And so even if you're going to be, even if you're going to kind of, you know, provide a literary device. Even if you're going to get very artistic, you should have a basic understanding of what's going on. If you're going to write a song about love, you should know something about love. What is it? And even if you go kind of off mark, you at least have a foundation. Mary here in this is very passionate, but what she's saying is also very accurate. There are four aspects of this song. First, it's God's blessing toward her. Then God's blessing from generation to generation. Third, God's judgment on the proud. And then finally, Mary's allusion to the covenant-keeping God. God's blessing toward Mary. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So first, we see God's blessing toward Mary, individually, personally. Now, Mary's response, as I mentioned, is very reminiscent, if not almost exactly from the words of Hannah, who had a miraculous birth of the prophet Samuel, over a thousand years prior to this event. Right, so what we're reading now happened 2,000 years ago. Mary's quoting something that happened 3,000 years ago. And Mary also would have been aware of Sarah's birth of Isaac, which happened 1,000 years before then. Now Elizabeth has a miraculous birth, which just happened six months earlier. All of these miraculous births, Why? I would argue the reason is because God wanted to demonstrate even prior to the birth of Christ that the power of salvation comes from one place and from him alone. It is not man somehow building a tower through childbirth to get to heaven. And, when, and, and all of these other miraculous births are pointing, they are a foreshadow to the ultimate miraculous birth because the miraculous birth of Mary is unlike all the others because all of the others might have been barren, but there was still a man involved. But now with Mary, Mary, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which turns it into something entirely different, which we discussed in detail in a previous sermon. His name would be Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. I mean, that's what Jesus means. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. By the way, she didn't come up with that. It wasn't original with her. We read in Psalm 34, 1 through 3, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Mary seemed quite ready to apply this psalm to her own life. She was ready. She was like, this this psalm now applies to me. In this, I think she provides a great example for us all. God had given Mary a great honor and every generation would call her blessed. But I don't think we should read that in such a way as to conclude that Mary was very happy about being famous. Like everybody's going to know, you know, like uh, there's, a, um, in the, there's a cemetery on the 405. I'm trying to remember. Al Jolson who remembers Al Jolson? Yeah. Al Jolson who was like a big deal in the 20s. He created a, if you go by that if you go by that cemetery you see this big kiosk and a big fountain and water it's it's Al Jolson. Because he's kind of like I may die but I want people to remember me. All right? So 8 of you remember like he wants to be famous from generation to generation. I don't think Mary, what she, I don't think what Mary's doing is that vain, right? I'm going to be so popular from generation to generation. I don't think it's mere fame or, or notoriety. I think it more has to do with being part of what God is doing in history. I remember not too long ago, I was studying a passage of Scripture you know, to give a sermon. And I I got to a place where I'm like, I think I understand what this passage is saying. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to preach it. Like, where's the sermon in here? I I get it, but I'm like, it should be ministerial, and I couldn't find it. And so there are a number of people I go to, you know, who I view as my teacher, and a lot of them have passed away. And one of them is a guy named Matthew Henry. He's a 17th century Presbyterian, and he was somebody who, when I would read him... I found the way he wrote was very ministerial. It wasn't just facts. It wasn't just the X's and O's of theology. It was very pastoral. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Matthew Henry here and figure out how, how would he preach this? Like, where's, you know, where's the redemptive, encouraging, challenging nature of this? And sure enough, I found it. And I remember telling my wife about it, you know, because every once in a while I'll sit down and she'll be like, how's the sermon going? I'm like, I don't know, I'm having a hard time finding the sermon. And then I told her about, you know, I go, but then I found Matthew Henry and it kind of helped me get where the ministerial aspect of, and my wife's reaction was, she almost broke into tears at the thought of a 17th century British pastor sitting in his study writing words that I, would, that I would read 400 years later, that I would benefit from in such a way that you would benefit. Like, it was like, he was part, that guy was part of what we all are benefiting from. God raised him up. The Bible talks about raising up teachers. And to this day, people are still benefiting as a result of Matthew Henry. And I think when Mary says that, you know, all generations shall call me blessed, I think it's more along those lines than I'm going to be famous. And all of this wonder, and this is a wondrous thing, Mary would not magnify herself, but rather she acknowledges her, quote, lowly estate, and what does she do? Magnifies the Lord. Get the spotlight off of me. Right? John the Baptist would say a similar thing, wouldn't he? Right, you know, I must decrease, he must increase. Don't focus on me. Magnify the Lord. I think it's here where the reformers and actually others view Roman Catholicism's exaltation of Mary as a distraction from the true blessing that a study of Mary should genuinely yield. It's it's a distraction. Mary is going to go and look at, don't magnify me. Magnify the Lord. We are to rejoice in the benefits she received from God in her lowly estate. We are not called here, or anywhere in Scripture, to view her as Calvin would say, to be the Queen of Heaven, the Star of Salvation, the Gate of Life. The sweetness, our hope, our salvation. And a few weeks ago, we went into all the titles given to Mary. The focus, she probably, you know, I don't believe that people turn in their graves, but you understand the figure of speech. She probably turns in her grave at the thought of being the object of idolatry or a focus even, even if it's not idolatry, the focus of the attention of the church. Why? Because she's like, magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Don't magnify, don't magnify me. The, in order for us to benefit in our study of Mary, we have to have the disposition of Mary. And the disposition of Mary was one of contrition. It, it never says of Mary what it says of Jesus, right, when he moves from his, his state of humiliation to a state of exaltation. We never see that said of Mary. Oh, now she's in a state of contrition. Now she's in a lowly estate. But someday she's going to be somebody to whom we will all bow the knee. We don't ever see that. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. But on this I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. This is her attitude. It should be our attitude. And we read if, when we read what she does and we want to kind of go, there's a godly woman that I need, at least in this respect, to imitate. Mary's soul would magnify the Lord, and her spirit would rejoice in God her Savior. Just a I know this kind of question comes up, and so let me just deal with it briefly here, because people are like going, oh, soul and spirit, what are the, the two? Some people just view this as a poetic repetition of the same thing. I tend to think that's what it is. Others, good people, believe the spirit is understanding and the soul is affection? Maybe. I don't know. When you get into like soul and spirit talk, that's pretty tough. Matter of fact, in Hebrews, it's used as something you can't even divide, right? Talking about the word of God, how it's like a two-edged sword dividing the soul and the spirit. It's like they're using that because we have a hard time making that division. So I don't know exactly which it is. But I will say this. Her praise toward God, though we see it here outwardly, is, a, is erupting from a truly pious heart. Whatever it is, whatever's going on inside, whatever's going on on the outside is coming from the inside. She's unlike so many famous singers, and I, I have to say, it's a little pet peeve of mine when they interview some famous singer who's living currently living a functionally denounced faith, right? They're just not at all interested. But when they're interviewed, they're like, oh yeah, I started singing in the church choir. That's where I started. That's not Mary. Mary's not going, I'm singing in the church choir in hopes of landing a gig for bigger things. One thing is clear, no matter how we slice up the language, both understanding and affection are contained in in Mary's song. That's something that can only be achieved by one who's well catechized in heart and mind. Knowledge of the promises of God and a joyful expectation of the fulfillment of those promises should be the goal of every believer. What are you investing in? What makes you happy? As I started, what excites you? Are you getting excited about the right things, or do you get excited about the wrong things? Because that is going to be determined on what part of your soul you actually decide to feed, that you focus on, that you give attention to. And by the way, Mary refers to God, her Savior. Now, I want to be fair to my Roman Catholic friends, and I have a lot of them, and those of you know, I've debated Roman Catholic apologists in the past, so I know their arguments. And so when we say, you know, Mary's got a Savior, they'll say, well, in the Bible, Savior can refer to a lot of different things. It can refer to salvation from bondage, salvation from obscurity, salvation from earthly predicaments. It could be salvation in a political sense. But I have to say, it seems to me that the context here, according to the cross-reference in Matthew one twenty one, is that Jesus came to save people from what? Their sins. I think you've a hard time in the Bible somehow demonstrating that Mary was sinless. And so again, I, don't, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm just ripping into Rome. Poor Rome, you know. But that disagreement still exists. We we need to at least be aware of what still is out there. They still believe in a sinless Mary. And in that respect, I think that's a pretty significant error. Now, the stanza ends with a very personal outburst. We read, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Right, So it's very individual, very personal. And holy is his name, what he has done for me. Now, I, let me just throw out here something for us to all be aware of. Because throughout the course of history, throughout the generations, there are two main, m- major dangers that take place. One is, a, is an overemphasis on the personal relationship to the exclusion of the corporate relationship. And the other is just the opposite. What I mean by that. I think, currently, we live in a society that really focuses on a personal relationship. Do I think that's important? Yes. I would say, if I were to go, well, which one is more important? I'd say, well, the personal relationship is more important than the corporate relationship. But we live in a culture where people are very comfortable in that personal relationship, so to the exclusion of the corporate relationship that they don't view being part of a Christian church as necessary at all. And that is, let me tell you, friends, that's a narcissistic understanding of the faith because it's all about me. It's all about what's happening to me. When the Bible talks about us getting together, it's not about me. It's about us. We're all part of a body, and the Apostle Paul uses that metaphor of a body, and then he goes on to say, and by the way, we need each other. So if you're not part of a Christian body where you are looking for opportunities to build other people up, then you're engaged in a very self-centered Christianity. And I can't think of anything more unbiblical than that. So you got that problem. It's all about me and my personal relationship and my guitar at the beach. I'm very spiritual, I read my Bible, but I'm, I'm like, when people say that to me, I'm like, well, clearly there's portions of your Bible that you're not reading. <laughs> you know, like, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. That's in there somewhere, right? It's in Hebrews. So it's there, but we just pass by that. But there's another problem throughout the course of history, and that is focus on the corporate relationship to the exclusion of the person, personal relationship. Now, again, you know, i I have a lot of Roman Catholic friends. I invite them to church, and they're like, well, you know, I go to St. Lawrence or St. James or what have you, well, Our Lady of Guadalupe. And then I'll ask them, you know, when was the last time they went? They don't really go that often. But they're on the rolls. And so they feel like, look, my religiosity is taken care of because I'm part of that institution. So it's a real problem, but let me tell you, it's not just Rome. I think you should be a baptized member in good standing of a Christian church. But you can be a baptized member in good standing of the best Christian church in the world, but if you don't actually have faith in what that baptism means, if you don't have faith in what those elements during the Lord's Supper point to, if you don't have the instrument of faith, none of that means anything. If anything, it means something negative. It's got to be both personal, and corporate. Mary includes, by the way, both of those. God has done great things for me. But then she moves on, verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, like she pushes it out, Mary's excitement is further established when she sees herself as part of the tapestry of God's everlasting covenant that we are part of something that God is doing throughout the course of history, and the way we react, the way we respond, the way we behave now will have an effect upon people that we will never meet until glory. We can't think short-term along those lines. Mary, no doubt, was familiar with this idea of a covenant, that God had made a covenant, God had made a promise God had made a bond. God had said, look, I'm not going to leave the world at the mercy of sin and death. And that promise comes right at the very beginning of history, right after the fall. He makes this promise, you know, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the enemy of God's people. But then it's elaborated upon just a few chapters later in Genesis 17, 7. It really starts in 12, but I'm going here and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. You see this idea of generational descendants. It's always the way God works. There should be an excitement in the life of the Christian, not only in what God is doing for us, But what God is doing in history, from generation to generation, do we even care? Would you be willing to plant a tree knowing that you will never sit in its shade? Knowing that the only people who are going to enjoy either the shade or the fruit are people that you will never meet in this life. Would you be willing to do that? Or is your understanding of the Christian faith, what's in it for me? Right here, right now. Mary's life, by the way, was going to be filled with difficulty and heartache. None of us would want Mary's life. Mary is very excited. She's singing this song. She's very excited, but I'll tell you, none of us would want her life. But her difficulty and her heartache would be major players in God's plan of redemption throughout history. She would... And I wouldn't want to, like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm speaking hyperbolically. I would not want to watch any of my children crucified. Like, she, I mean, I've said this a few times, and I'll probably say it more times. You know, she was already told that what's going to happen with your child is going to pierce your heart. You're going to see that, like, in the next chapter. This, you know, Simeon, he's like, you're in for a rough ride, sister. It's going to pierce your heart. She would witness the crucifixion of her son. But you know who also she would witness? The crucifixion of her Savior and the crucifixion of the Savior of the world. I mean, it's, you talk about bittersweet. You know, the Bible, this idea of bittersweet, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, s- sweet on the lips but sour in the stomach. It's this idea that in one respect it's beautiful and in the other respect it's painful. And that's the way it works. The true glory of what God is doing through history can only be appreciated with one who has a very lengthy view of ministry. Like I had mentioned earlier, you know, I've been in this church for almost 34 years, but I've been in this community, you know, for my whole life 35 years. Just kidding. <laughs> and one of the advantages of being here for so long is I've had the the opportunity to see that which seemed like it wasn't going to work begin to work like I'm very I very much play the long game you know when I I was just down talking to some non-christian friends of mine at the beach and in our little circle you know and Frankie you know some of these guys in our little circle there's things being said and I'm like okay at this point do I ruin this entire conversation <laughs> And sometimes I'll say something, but I, I'm playing the long game, right? Because I'm like, I'm gonna, I'll address this with this guy privately, not in the middle of the circle. You know, so you're thinking, you know, we'll see what goes on next time we talk. See what goes on next time we have this opportunity. I think we have to have, a, in one respect, a lengthy view of ministry we're giving God time to do what God is going to do, rather than be the person who's like, how can I get you into this car? Right? We're not used car salesmen. Right? We're not going, we got to close this deal today. Not that I don't believe there's a sense of urgency because tomorrow is promised to no man. I, I do believe that. But at the same time, we got to be careful that the Christian faith, especially in the culture in which we live, is not viewed as a product. It's not Amway. You know, it's not Herbal Life. Not against Amway or Herbal Life. But you understand, right? This is not network marketing. You know the success of the Four Spiritual Laws? You guys familiar with that? The Four Spiritual Laws? Huge, huge success. I knew the guy, I had the opportunity, and knew fairly well the guy who wrote those. And he owned a candy company. He was a businessman. And he understood business principles. So he wrote it in such a way to close the deal. I mean, are you guys familiar with this little booklet, right? It, not, I don't want to get into details here, but basically it, just, it tells you a little bit about Christianity, and then there's a circle, and then in the circle there's a, a cross, and there's another circle, and the cross is outside the circle, right? And so... You, we, I was part of this organization, so they taught us how to do this. you got to get the pencil and point, right, to one of the circles. And you go, which circle best represents your life? And they look at it, and they're like, oh, the one with the cross on the outside. Which circle would you like to have represent your life? Right? So know what you're doing, right? You're, you're closing the deal. You're kind of going, it's the way. You know, what, you know, what car... Can I get you in today? Do you like this one or that one? You don't give them the third option, right? You don't say this one, that one, or no one, right? You give them one or two options. And so the Christian faith has become kind of a product. And you know what? And people smell it when you're talking. They could tell you're trying to close a deal. Rather than invest in a relationship where you care about them, you love them, you pray for them, you pray with them that you're actually investing in this person's life. We need to think about the long game. We must not be overly discouraged about the apparent failures or even victories of a singular generation. We can't think that way. What the children of God must realize, and I think what Mary seems to be singing about here, is that all of history, as someone said, is a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. I think that, you know, I wonder how many of us feel that way about our own lives. I mean, God has made these great promises, right? Romans 8.28. That, you know, that all things work together for good, but you're kind of going, I ain't feeling it. But we have to recognize it is a, it is a string of triumphs but it may be disguised as disasters. Even though God's goodness at some level, by the way, is known to all men, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, the mercy of which Mary sings is extended here to a specific group. Who's it extended to? Those who fear him. Matthew Henry states, it has been a common observation that God, in his providence, puts contempt upon the haughty, and honor upon the humble. I know that the fear of God is kind of a confusing subject for a lot of people. We don't like to have it up front and center in our discussion, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God should not be viewed as a debtor. Like We don't enter into an engagement with God where we go, well, you know, I've done this, so you owe me. God should not be viewed as a contemporary. You know, that's one of my problems, you know, with kind of contemporary, you know, you got traditional and contemporary worship, you know, and I guess we're moderately contemporary, but when you have a worship service where God is viewed as a contemporary, that becomes a dangerous little step to take. God is to be feared. Get your Bibles out, get a concordance out, and look up the word fear. It's in there a lot, but I hasten to say that it is not a servile fear. It is not a slavish fear. Perfect love, we, t- we read, John writes, casts out fear. So in one respect, God's going, no, don't be afraid. But in another respect, we are to be afraid. It's not a slavish, servile fear, but it is a holy, reverent awe. It, I guarantee you that if, we, if, there was any, if there was any, like theophany, any representation of God, kind of fell into your lap. You would fall right on your face. In the Bible, almost every time somebody comes to realize that they're in the presence of God, the great fear falls over them. But how wonderful when, after that great fear falls over them, the Lord puts his right hand out and says, don't be afraid. See, that's the best place that a person can be. Mary is now going to move to the third thing, and we're going to wrap it up. Be, this will be a lot quicker. And that is the judgment that comes to those who have no fear of God in their eyes, those who trust in their own strength, the strength of their own arms, their own minds. These are those whose God does not extend beyond their own skin. They wouldn't, review, they wouldn't refer to themselves as God, but they operate as if they are God. Make no doubt about it. He has shown strength with his army. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. But keep in mind, this is probably a 16-year-old girl with what a worldview that she has. God scatters those who are proud in the imagination of their hearts. Who Mary is likely thinking of are people in power who trust in their own innovations their own goals their own methods rather than the goals the methods and the wisdom of god these are people who are going i'm in charge and you know we we might in our culture view that as a minor inconvenience but historically people who operated that way killed a lot of people they were like i have a goal i have a goal for this nation i have a goal for the world and if it means i have to kill a bunch of people so be it because i am god and history will vindicate me. This word oppression its kind of made a comeback, right? Oppression. Huge word today. Let me tell you a little bit about oppression. True oppressors throughout history are those who view themselves as ultimate and who refuse to bow to a loving, wise, and benevolent God those people will be oppressors. It is built into human nature. And the only thing that keeps them from being the evil, powerful oppressors of history is that they're not in power. But if they were put in positions of power with the same disposition, watch out. I have to say, it would appear to me that our very best political candidates have lost sight of what it means to govern in such a way as to defer to the only wise God and Savior. I just feel, even the people who I like, I'm like, there's just an arrogance. Where's the humility? I can't speak with any real knowledge on this one, this new guy, this new Speaker of the House. Seems pretty good to me. Like, I'm going, this guy does not seem political. This guy, Mike Johnson, I think his name is. And the fact that the people who are the worst people imaginable hate him, Kind of makes me feel like he must be pretty good. <laughs> but it's, I, I feel like humility in politics has just gone the way of the wind. I mean, it's like you just need to talk about yourself as, you're the greatest, as if you're the greatest thing. And I'm just looking for somebody who's got some humility. William Hendrickson made the comment that in the course of history, God's mighty power has repeatedly punished these arrogant people. They, they're going to have their 15 minutes. They're going to have their time, and then they're going to be done. God exalts the lowly. He fills the hungry with good things, unlike the bad things the ungodly wants to want to fill with us with. And the rich, he sends away empty. Now, just keep this in mind, because you hear words like that, and we're sitting in the room, and maybe some of us are like, yeah, those rich people, boy, they're really bad. The, the Bible doesn't talk that it's inherently wrong to be rich. There were some very good rich people in the Bible. And by the way, if we wanted to talk internationally or historically, pretty much everybody in this room would be rich. I mean, just do you understand human history? Do you understand what's going on in the world? You know, it's not just Elon Musk, and who's the guy who owns Apple, um, or not Apple, Microsoft, it's not those guys. They are rich, but we would be considered rich. I mean, how rich do you have to be to be rich? The problem is when one thinks their riches to be satisfactory. That's the problem. The problem. It's when look at. I have everything I need. I just got to build more silos for my grain, right? You rich fool, Jesus calls that person. Jesus, his words actually to the church at Laodicea, here's a church that they, they think, and I, you know, I read this, and you, I don't know about you, but whenever I watch a movie, when I watch Star Wars, I'm like Han Solo, right? I'm not one of the stormtroopers, right? I'm like, I'm a, I watch that and I'm like, I'm, I'm one of the heroes, Right? So we naturally kind of want to put ourselves in the hero spot. So when I, when I read what I'm about to read here, I need to kind of go look at, this could be us. Right? This is a warning to a church. It could be us. We think we got it all together. We think we have everything we need. We think we're in the right direction. Jesus is writing to this church who is, they're thinking they have, quote, become wealthy and have need of nothing. But you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We got to do an honest analysis of ourselves. I mean, we, we are all vulnerable to being that. That's why it's written in the Bible. It's not written in the Bible for other people. It's not for you to go, oh, I'm going to give this to my neighbor. It, You can give it to your neighbor, but you better read it first. Matthew Henry states, they come full of self, and they are sent away empty of Christ. Mary grasped the the wisdom of men humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God. For God, as we read in Daniel, he changes the times and the seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. It would be the son of Mary who would inherit the nations and break the ungodly with a rod of iron, as we read in Psalm 2. Basically, what Mary is saying here in this song is, Jesus is going to set things straight. We've got, we're totally off balance in this world. Sin has just taken the scales, and things are crazy, but the Lord is coming, and he is going to make things right. I don't think it'll ever be perfect in history. But I do think, at least my understanding of end times and eschatology, it'll move in that direction. In the same way that you individually are being sanctified and you are being more Christ-like, you're never going to be sinless in this life so you'll have sin till the day you die, but there's a direction that we all should be taking in terms of our sanctification, and that is being conformed into the image of Christ. We should not view it okay to stay in the same place. We should not be as sinful today as we were yesterday. We should be less sinful. And I realize there's ups and downs, but you've got to evaluate the direction of your life, and I would argue that's the same thing that Mary is singing about throughout the course of history. There'll be ups and downs but the gospel is going to straighten things out. Finally, and we see her talking about the covenant keeping God, our last two verses, we'll finish with this. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So she's, she recognizes this is nothing new. There was a promise God made and now he's keeping that Promise. Mary knew the covenant promises of God. She knew what God had promised. And through whom God promised it, right? God had promised to Abraham that through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a lot of blessing. All the families of the earth. Okay, but let me ask you this. Because of what, I'm going to, what I'm going to finish with here, if you agree with me, currently you're going to be in the minority. And by the minority, I don't mean the minority of American citizens, you're going to be in the mo- minority of Western evangelicalism currently. You want, it's not the minority historically, it's not the minority well, when Luther was around, or Calvin was around, or Edwards, or Owens, or even Spurgeon, but now it is, and so I have to throw it out there. Abraham and his seed, is that you? Because she seems to be excluding the Gentiles. It's to Abraham and his seed. And I know that we have some Jewish Christians at our church, but most of you are Gentiles. So, and I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, this doesn't apply to the Gentiles. It doesn't apply to Gentile Christians. It only applies to Jewish Christians. Am I excluded? Are you excluded from Mary's song? Are, are you in the chorus? Now you come to the very end and you're like, whoa, this is to Abraham and his seed. I just realized after all of this, this whole long sermon that I just kind of sat through, that it doesn't even apply to me. The covenant is with Israel and Abraham and his seed. What about those who believe in the very Savior that was in the body of Mary at the time. I have to say, I think this is where much of modern Christendom has been robbed. This this whole system called dispensationalism, I feel like, boy, they have really taken the Old Testament, and as Greg Bonson said, they turned it into the Word of God emeritus. We can learn some things from it, but it really is no longer a player in the life of the Christian. We are made to think and to feel as if these promises are for others, But let me tell you, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. That's not just me saying it. That's actually in the Bible. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to the promise. No matter whose blood is flowing through your veins, the promise made to Abraham was that through him, All the families of the world would be blessed. See, even the Old Testament was always universal in its final aim. And the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, are the recipients of the precious promises contained in the person and the work of the blessed Savior. Friends, God has made an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise. It is directed toward those who come to God seeking mercy through Jesus And the good news of this mercy has reached our generation. Here we are in this generation. It's reached our ears. And may our souls, like Mary's, magnify the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would learn from the example of this young woman who was so invested in the things of God that her soul was excited about the knowledge of being part of what you are doing. And we pray, Father, that we would have that similar excitement, that we would rejoice in Christ, that our souls and our spirits would would magnify the God who has saved us individually and then brought us into his own family. We pray, Father, that through your spirit this would work deeply in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.